Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When state representatives Justin Jones and Justin J. Pearson were expelled from the state house for violating decorum, people in Nashville, Tennessee, and the rest of the country took notice. Many were appalled. Some called it un- undemocratic and even fascist. However shocking, it was not the first attempt at quieting African-American political power. Not even close. That has been happening for decades. MTSU political science professor Sekou Franklin has written about this in the book Losing Power, African-Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics. Later this hour, we'll talk with him, along with a current state representative and a voting rights advocate about African-American political power in our state. But first, in the past month, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee has been in the spotlight as people have waited to see how he'll respond to a mass shooting at the Covenant Elementary School. The violence had struck close to home, taking the life of six victims, including a close family friend of the governor's. One of the announcements Lee made was a rare one in such a Second Amendment-friendly state. He called for gun control measures. Republican lawmakers pushed to end their legislative session early rather than take up his proposal. Lee responded within hours by saying he would force legislators to return to the Capitol for a special session. But the system he is embracing already allows violent people to hold on to their weapons. WPLN's Paige Flager is reporting on this through a partnership with ProPublica, and she joins us now. Hey, Paige. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So, So walk us through Lee's proposal. What would it do and how would it work? So a 13-page draft of Lee's proposal lays out how this new process of separating dangerous people from their guns would function. If someone had concerns that someone was a threat to themselves or others, they could make an uh, alert law enforcement, um, which could then ask the courts for what Lee is calling a temporary mental health order of protection. The gun owner would hold on to their gun but would be required to attend a hearing within 10 days. Before appearing in court, they would undergo an assessment for suicidal or homicidal ideation. And then the court would decide whether to issue the order, which would instruct the gun owner to surrender their firearms for 180 days. And Lee says his approach is based off of a system that already exists. Tell me more about that. So his proposal is basically an expansion of a system that exists for domestic violence victims, which allows victims of domestic violence and stalking to indicate if their abuser has a gun and allow a court to decide whether or not the weapon must be surrendered. It's called an order of protection law. And under Lee's proposal, this process that has been in place for for years now would be available to the general public beyond just family or dating relationships. Now, on paper, this looks promising, but you've been reporting on this system for a while now, and there are actually some flaws in it as it stands. Can you share what those are? 
Yeah. So in practice, Tennessee's current gun dispossession process to protect domestic violence victims has flaws that can have really dangerous consequences. Once someone is ordered to give up their guns by the court, there's very little follow through. The gun owner is supposed to fill out an affidavit indicating how they dispossessed. But domestic violence advocates say that that form rarely gets filed with the court. Everything falls apart at that point. Um, there's no follow through with the people who don't turn in the affidavit. <laughs> there's no um, follow through to see if people really did dispossess. Where are the guns? Who did you give them to? Blah, blah, blah. So um, to expand that is not going to work. And while other states require guns to be turned over to law enforcement, Tennessee allows someone to give their guns to a third party, like a friend or a relative. And that's the most common outcome in Tennessee when someone's ordered to dispossess, but it's a rarity in the rest of the country. There are only about a dozen states that allow this type of third party dispossession. And those other states have a patchwork of rules that help to ensure that the weapons are safely turned over to that third party, including identifying who received the gun, bringing the recipients to court to explain their responsibilities, or even holding them liable if the guns end up in the wrong hands. Tennessee hasn't adopted any of those practices, and the state doesn't even require the third party to be identified on the form. Mm, so there's a shortcoming in the paperwork. But what about the tracking the guns themselves? So the state similarly has no mechanism to ensure that the gun is actually ever turned over to the third party at all. It's also really difficult for the court to know how many guns a person has and if they dispossessed some instead of all of their weapons. Becky Bullard works with domestic violence victims at Nashville's Office of Family Safety and says the system needs more enforcement. So at the end of the day, firearms dispossession really relies on an honor system, which, as we know, just doesn't work. And asking for individuals who are harming their intimate partners to be honorable and truthful to the court system is really a flawed system. And as a result, some people don't actually give up their weapons when they're ordered to, which can have really dangerous consequences. So do we know how often people are taking advantage of these gaps in the system? Tennessee, like most states, keeps no record of how many people are killed by guns that the perpetrator should not have had access to. But Nashville's Office of Family Safety, a division within the city government that works with these domestic violence survivors, does keep track. So their numbers can kind of provide a, a very limited glimpse over a couple of years into the death toll of this flawed system. Uh, and from 2018 to 2020 in Nashville, 27 people died in domestic violence shootings. The office used court records to find that roughly half of the perpetrators in domestic violence gun homicides were prohibited from having access to a weapon at the time of the shooting. They could have been barred because of a domestic violence charge, an order of protection, a felony conviction, or even their age. This same system came under a lot of scrutiny in 2018 after Travis Reinking walked into a Nashville Waffle House and killed four people. Right. He came from Illinois, where he had been ordered to give up his guns. He gave them to his father, but one of those weapons was used in the shooting. How did that impact gun laws here? So in the aftermath, Illinois 
tightened their gun dispossession process. The criminal court sentenced Ryan King to life in prison without the possibility of parole, but it also sentenced his father to 18 months for letting his son have access to those weapons. So that's that third-party liability piece that I was talking about. But when lawmakers and advocates introduced a similar reform in Tennessee a year after the Waffle House shooting, it did not pass. And now advocates are really worried that the Covenant shooting may have the same outcome, just another tragedy without any meaningful reform. Now, do we have a sense if those flaws would be fixed if Lee's proposal gets picked up during this special session? So when when we reached out for comment, Lee's office didn't address these specific problems that we're discussing with the current system. But he did state that the law could be strengthened and expanded during the legislative process. His proposal does include some improvements to the system that we have now. Um, For example, it instructs judges to bring the gun owner back to court within seven days if they fail to fill out the paperwork indicating that they gave up their firearms. And it requires proof of dispossession, although it doesn't indicate what evidence would actually suffice. But advocates think it doesn't go far enough in large part because it still allows for those guns to be given to the anonymous third party. You'll be reporting on this for WPLN and ProPublica over the next year and are looking for people to share their stories with you. Can you tell our listeners what you're hoping to do and how they can get in touch? Yes. So over the next year, ProPublica and WPLN News will be investigating cases in Tennessee where someone was shot or killed with a gun that the perpetrator should not have had access to. As we've been talking about, Tennessee's dispossession laws bar someone from having a gun if they're convicted of a felony or subject to an order of protection. But the laws allow some guns to slip through the cracks with these deadly consequences. So if you know someone who is affected by this issue, we want to hear from you in order to power our investigation. You can reach out to me at page at WPLN or check out today's episode post. There's a link to my latest ProPublica story and there's a form at the end of that that people can fill out. We'll be talking about one of those cases on Wednesday show. We're rebroadcasting a story that Paige reported on last year about the case of Marie Varsos, who was killed by her estranged husband with a gun he shouldn't have had access to. And of course, we look forward to having you back on the show to give us updates and share stories with us as you come across them. Paige Flager is WPLN's criminal justice reporter. As always, Paige, thanks for being here and thank you for your reporting. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at how the recent expulsion and reinstatement of two African-American state representatives fits a pattern that goes back decades. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Kulona, and this is Nashville. The state legislature has been making the headlines recently, most notably for the removal of representatives Justin Jones and Justin J. Pearson after they were cited for violation of decorum under state house rules. The move by the Republican supermajority made global news in part because of the optics. Two young black lawmakers were removed, while Gloria Johnson, an older white woman, avoided expulsion by one vote. While the expulsions made news around the world, this kind of treatment for African-Americans is unfortunately nothing new. 
For decades, the political power in of African-Americans in Tennessee has been shrinking. That is the backdrop for the expulsions of representatives Jones and Pearson. To explore this, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Sekou Franklin is a professor, is a political science professor at MTSU and co-author of the book Losing Power, African-Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics. He is joined by Representative Vincent Dixie, who represents District 50, 54 in the State House. Professor Franklin, Representative Dixie, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I really appreciate you both being here. So, okay, we we saw national and global media. We saw that descend to Nashville and the State House when the young representatives were being expelled. A lot of folks were taken back by the optics of it and how race appeared to play a role into what happened. Uh, Sekou, in your mind, what was missing from the coverage? Well, missing from the coverage to me was um, the historic role that black lawmakers had played, both in terms of publicly facing protests, but also in terms of behind the scenes and pushing back against racism, advancing bills to deal with the dis disadvantage. And particularly in that story is the role of black women and older black women. And I'm thinking about my research, some of the interviews I've, I did with people like Barbara Cooper and, and uh, Johnny Turner and Lois DeBerry. And so there's a what the news kind of portrayed was an origin story of resistance for black lawmakers that mm. supposedly started in April of 2023. But the story of, of how black lawmakers have both in the terms of kind of movement protests in terms of how you make how you legislate, but also in terms of just the ability to navigate a very tough terrain of, of the legislature, how they've had to do that for decades. Um, particularly black women, but also how they've had to do that even back to the to the reconstruction era when black lawmakers tried to lead the fight against anti-lynching, anti tried to lead the fight in favor of an anti-lynching bill. Mm -hmm. So to me, what's missing is this larger context of the role that black lawmakers have played. And, and also what's also missing is really a larger issue of of who controls the committee process, a larger issue of, you know, the, you have a solid, very strong supermajority that has a surplus or an abundant amount of voters in their districts that uh, that are not going anywhere. Um, and so how do you then shift the political terrain given that that larger context? As I said, people, a lot of people were shocked by the move. How did you respond to it? The exposure move? Mm -hmm. um, I was I was sad and disappointed. I was glad that the that the larger community rallied behind uh, the, the two Justins. Um, I think that where I was a little bit disappointed in was um, the narrative of democracy dying um, was to me incomplete because it ignores other problems with democracy, like the voter restoration of formerly incarcerated persons who can't vote. We have um, constitutional offices in this state, Secretary of State, Comptroller General Office, and we also have an Attorney General's Office that had made really strong moves against democracy and really targeting, I think, my perspective, black voters, black constituents, black black communities. And then I think I was hopeful, I was hoping that this larger debate about expulsion would would tie the debate directly to bills that were cooking on the stove at the time. And so uh, while you had this national outrage around expulsions and the reinstatement of the two Justins, the legislature went about its business and mm -hmm. passed bad bills that are disadvantaging marginalized communities and bad bills attacking civil rights. I mean, almost all the bills they wanted got passed, 
during this period of time in which we had national attention focused on that. So I wish they would have narrated that. That would have been narrated into this discussion of democracy. I want to get to some of the points you raised a little bit later, but let me ask you, Rep. Representative Dixie, what was going through your mind as the state house moved to expel two of your colleagues? Is this really happening? Uh, and are they even thinking about the repercussions that this is going to cause? What it like when it's looking at the optics of it, but also when you have a combination of power arrogance and ignorance, this is what we get. And so I was like, well, maybe this has to play out. The country's going to see what we've been dealing here in Tennessee for a long time. And now everybody gets to see. They, we get to pull the curtain back. Everybody sees how politics work in Tennessee and what we're up against in the minority party, not only being in the minority party as a Democrat, but being a black lawmaker. There are certainly certain things that we can do in order to just get any legislation passed. Well, let me ask you, what's the what's the atmosphere like for black lawmakers in the state legislature right now? Uh, right now, it's, uh, you know, now the microscope is on, on top of them. So everybody, of course, they wasn't our friend, but now they want to be our friend. Mm. Um, but that was too late. We know what 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 really is is behind all this. You know, when we as a black lawmaker, even as a Democratic lawmaker, we can't pass anything that has a fiscal note. It can't have the words gender, race. Um, diversity, equality, those are non-starters in this particular um, General Assembly. And since I've been there, since 2018, it's always been a powder keg. It's always been right there, just ready to explode. Um, with George Floyd, it was right there. Um, and, and, and the leadership from the other side, the Republican leadership, did nothing to quell that temperature. It just kept rising, rising, rising. And eventually what we saw was a pop. And that's where we are now. So the national media may have packed up and left town, but the expulsion story continues to <clears throat> reverberate here in Nashville and Middle Tennessee, across the state, really. And in a recent story in the Washington Post, South Carolina State Representative Marvin Pendarvis said, quote, if you look at the profile of Tennessee, it's strikingly similar to South Carolina in many ways. Similar things happen here in a way that some representatives speak to bat black legislators as if we're not that equal, end quote. Representative Dixie, do you share that feeling? Most definitely. Um, the past two years, I was the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus um, for the entire minority party. And I never met with the speaker on a, a matter that was about bills. If it is, it was something wrong. There was no communication because he felt like he didn't have to. And um, I felt like it was a slap in the face because he had met with my other predecessors. He's talked with them, but he didn't talk to me. And I can only think of what was the difference mm. because I was the first black chairman of the Tennessee Democratic Party in the history of Tennessee. So you're talking about over 100 years. I was the first black. And he openly um, campaigned against the speaker, openly campaigned against me and interfered in our elections. Um, but it's it's just tough. It's a very tough environment that we deal with in there, and it's, it is it is always some racial tension going on, um, and we just have to navigate it, and we do the best that we can. Now, Professor Franklin, how does the current environment differ from what was happening just a few decades ago? Well, it's dramatically different because 
you have a supermajority that has control. Um, basically, um, they they have a quorum, um, and then that supermajority Republicans um, are anchored by a strong level of extremism, political extremism. And their base voters, um, if you look at across the 95 counties, their base voters um, are solid. Um, And we did a um, a study for our research for our book and found out that in the decade that Republicans were marching towards a supermajority, that first decade of the 21st century, 2002, 2012, that Republicans had a net gain of 27 seats in supermajority lily white communities. That is 90% plus white communities. So many of these lawmakers that make up the supermajority are also insulated um, by these kind of segregated communities that are not just, you know, majority white or multiracial, but are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly white. And a lot of the messaging that they have, they, 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 they relate to their constituents, um, is contained to those kinds of, those kinds of communities. So it's dramatically different, say, for example, even a decade or so ago. It's, frankly, it's, it's different than even probably 10 years, uh, five or 10 years ago in terms mm-hmm. of the, 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 the muscle of the supermajority um, and also the, the level of extremism. And there's, there's one more caveat to this that I think is important. I've been thinking through this is that, um, y- yes, the, the countries now sees Tennessee in the same way that maybe they saw Florida or Texas. But the one difference between Tennessee versus those two states is that in Florida and Texas, the governor has an outsized influence, at least in terms of the public. Um, has muscular outside influence. Where in Tennessee, our legislature and governor almost have inverted roles. Hmm. Where our legislature has almost the same kinds of publicly facing outsized influence as Governor DeSantis does in Florida or Governor Abbott does in Texas. So our legislature almost operates as as a kind of a supper or a kind of, uh, uh, they're at the top of the mountain, whereas the governor's role has been seemingly diminished. And that's not just about Bill Lee. That goes back to what the legislature did to uh, Bill Haslam um, around around the Medicaid expansion or or the equivalent of the Medicaid expansion, so that's the difference between in Tennessee from now versus decades ago, but also Tennessee, how Tennessee is different from some of these other states. Would you say that that dynamic is in place because of the supermajority, that the legislature can then, in any way, beat their chest in the face of the governor and what the governor wants? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Tennessee has had supermajorities before from the other side, but but historically in Tennessee— You've had this uh, this kind of uh, more of a consensus between maybe conservative Democrats, some Republicans, um, whether even when Democrats had control. But absolutely, the supermajority in Tennessee, um, it's because of the supermajority. And if you go back to the expulsion crisis and you go back to the at least part of the leaked audio that came out of the Republican caucus, then Representative Scott Sapecki more or less stated that in Tennessee, we, he, this is an argument, he said Tennessee has to, Republicans have to hold the line because— if ten, it's almost like a civil war talk that if Tennessee falls to quote unquote the left or what he thinks is the left, then it's going to open up. A, it's going to be a gateway to the southeast. Mm-hmm. So many of these lawmakers view view this in kind of old school civil war terms, mm-hmm. you know, where if Tennessee falls, then you got a gateway to those other kind of mid-south or, or southeastern states. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about the eroding of political power of African-Americans in Tennessee with State Representative Vincent Dixie and MTSU political science professor Sekou Franklin. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, Representative Dixie, what are the chances of a black representative introducing legislation and it being taken seriously? 
it's funny that you asked that question. We were talking about that before we came in here. And what we have to do is we have to introduce our bill, but also we have to do a, a public pressure campaign around the bill. Mm. Right. For instance, we'll take the grocery sales tax that we holiday that we have here in Tennessee. Well, I introduced that in 2021 um, during the pandemic because I felt like that was a way to give re- give some relief to people who needed it the most, um, who were struggling. So it didn't pass because they had too much uh, too much uh, of a large uh, fiscal note. But what the governor did, he's I built a campaign around it. So now we first went from two weekends to two weeks, and now we're at two months. The goal is to show we don't need a, a grocery sales tax. So we have to use those type of tactics in order to get the bill across the finish line. And it's like uh, uh, when I first started, an uh, elder statesman told me, he said, do you want your name on it or do you want it done? Mm. And I want it done. Yeah. And so I'm okay. I don't have any pride in this. It's just how can I help my community the best way? And when um, Professor Franklin was talking to me about just the mindset, and he was talking about uh, of Scott Sapicki and the words that he used, you know, words have meanings and words have consequences. And to say, we got to hold on. We got to, this is the gateway. We're going to lose the Southeast. Where, where did this mentality come from? Aren't we supposed to be here to make it, a life better for our Tennesseans at, at best, and not just white Tennesseans, not rural Tennesseans, not urban, but all Tennesseans. And that gets lost. And it becomes when you have so much power and you don't know how to wield the power, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people saw in Tennessee that it's not just theatrics. Like, we don't go perform for a camera and then we go to dinner with each other. There's truly like a dislike for each other and, and a lack of disrespect because they don't have to. So, but now they're with the world watching. Yes, they're, they're tipping their toes, but they're going back to their same old, same old uh, routines and what they've been doing. Well, what is it like as a representative, someone who is duly elected by their constituents, by the people, you go into this institution that they just kicked out. They had, well, they, they kicked out two members because of the rules of the quorum. So they're talking about the honor of the institution. Yet at the institution, you're not even recognized barely for your humanity. What's it, what's it like to approach that place every day to do the work for the people that you've represented? Well, it's one of those things like when, especially when you're a black person, um, you have to, I have to revert back to what my mother told me when I was a toddler. You know, use your words. And you have to fight with your words um, because words do have meanings and they have consequences. So it's it's very frustrating. But we're no we're no strangers to having to work twice as hard to outsmart our um, colleagues to do what we need to do. Um, that's just that's the status quo for us, especially as black people. But yes, it just correlates to the to our black legislation that we have to pass. And so there's sometimes that we can reach across the aisle because they have fast facets of, of, of factions of people in their, in their uh, party that have different ideas. So we have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. Right? Mm. Now, Professor Franklin, many are focused on the events of the Tennessee Three, but I'm curious about how the style of government, governance in our state, how that factors into this. Well, yeah, there, there is, a, and a, if I can use the word, use this in a very strong manner. There is an authoritarian streak that exists in Tennessee governance overall. And um, it's not just in the legislature, but it's in, for example, 
the executive, the bureaucracy. So in, in Tennessee, and, and that's why the story of the Tennessee Three is not just about the legislature. It's about institutions, so-called Democratic institutions that are really failing folks. So, for example, we've had um, the Comptroller General's office has made a, a direct attack on Tennessee State University and the all-black town of Mason, Tennessee. Right now, some of the work I'm involved in outside of the academy, um, there is a is dispute of which TDOT, Tennessee Department of Transportation, is involved potentially in a land grab of black black landowners in, in, in rural West Tennessee around the, around the Ford plant. We saw a situation in which the Secretary of State's office, or Secretary of State in particular, has made, you know, three or four major attempts in the last decade to make it more difficult for people to vote, ranging from photo ID laws to voter purge to, in 2019, working with lawmakers to to um, to criminalize uh, what's called not not third party or basically voter registration efforts by civil rights groups and civic groups. So mm. we see this kind of broader attack on democratic institutions, not just from the legislative branch, but also from the from the uh, executive branch. And it, it, and it underscores really the lack of democracy. There's some research actually out there. I don't think it's been updated, but one of the researchers, political science out there, said that Tennessee, out of all the 50 states, ranked the lowest in terms of in terms of democracy um, in in the actual country. Mm-hmm. This is like a 2018 study, and I can and significantly things have gotten worse since then. So mm-hmm. it represents this kind of broader, what I would call an authoritarianism that exists, or or a non-democracy is probably the best way to exist in various fabrics of various parts of, of Tennessee. Now, I understand that in the years past, there was the thing, so-called thing called the Black Caucus Retreat, and it used to be a very, very big deal. Quickly, Professor Franklin, can you quickly tell us about that? The, the Black Caucus Retreat was a place, it was a gathering, gathering space. It was a place where ideas could be crowdsourced, uh, policy initiatives could be Celebrated, and I think you know one of the things in this kind of contemporary space is that um, historically advocacy groups and, and organizing groups would, and also you know kind of um, African American doctors, medical doctors, policy wonks would would work in concert with lawmakers, and the Black Caucus Retreat would be the venue in which a lot of those ideas are vetted out. In fact, in some of my research, I found out that even like Lamar Alexander when he was governor. His top, you know, people in his in his in his office were going to the Black Caucus retreat, and if you read through the actual hmm. reports and presentations I have, I mean, they were they were they were kind of nervous, like they had to be accountable to black lawmakers. Mm-hmm. I mean, even even on the Republican side at the Black Caucus retreats, it was a real uh, venue of accountability, and and the kind of the decline or loss of the Black Caucus retreats as we know it, as we know it, as we know them, is is really a major hit in terms of bringing together. Both the the, the political the, the elected officials and the non elected officials around some level of cohesion. Representative Dixie, what are the chances of the caucus that that the caucus reemerges? That is a great question that you brought up because that has been my main focus for this past year, and I've been laser focused on it. So, but the one thing that we had to do first was to get a uh, the infrastructure together to make sure that we have the right setup that what do we have everything politically and business wise and the government set up so that we can make sure that we have it, have it at all our, dot all our I's and cross all our T's. And what uh, the other part of it is that it, it, it allows our local state and federal, we don't have any federal um, politicians yet, um, but uh, to get together and we all come into it and have some, 
uh, come and caucus with each other. So by uh, my goal is to by, by next year that we should be able to have one, a statewide one by next year. Okay. That's my goal. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll examine the history of African-Americans losing political power in our state and explore a way forward. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Kulona, and this is Nashville. We've been talking about the ways black political power in our state has diminished over recent decades. The expulsion of state representatives Justin Jones and Justin J. Pearson was just the most recent and visible example. And the loss of political influence extends far beyond the halls of the state capitol. My next guest knows this all too well. I'd like to welcome Jimmy Garland, vice president of Middle Tennessee chapter of the Tennessee State Conference of the NAACP. Jimmy, thanks for being with us today and welcome back to This is Nashville. My pleasure. Thanks for the re-invite. Thank you, sir. So you work to register voters across Middle Tennessee. What are people in rural areas telling you about how safe they feel voting? Well, uh, I've uh, I've uh, been. It has been reported to me that there are uh, people. There was a person that was riding home uh, from work one evening, and they uh, looked out across the field and saw a cross being burned. And he asked one of my counterparts to stay on the line with him until he got home to make sure he got home safe. Uh, that is an example of some of the things that are happening out in the rural community uh, uh, that is going to support voter suppression. That is supporting voter suppression for the state of Tennessee. Uh, and the bottom line is, uh, it's not right. It's, that's not American. That's not what I served my country 29 years to foster. Cross burnings. Is all of voter registration race related, you think? Voter intimidation, pardon me. Is you think that's all race related? Well, no, it's not really race related. It's a it's a it's a cultural. Uh, that's what I call it, because you have not only uh, people of color that are terrified, you have some people that are uh, of the majority community that are terrified as well. That's the reason why they don't go to the polls. Uh, one of the things that we're finding out in our research uh, in the uh, in the review of data is that only 10 percent of the voters are electing are e- electing 100 percent of the legislators in Nashville. Uh, And as a a person who actually is an elected official myself, uh, most of the time, politicians don't mind people not voting, because if you don't vote, that means that the same people that voted me in the last session will vote me in again. Mm -hmm. That only way we're going to change this is by getting people to the poll. Now, I'm interested in seeing, like, what else is being done to pressure people to not vote? What other tactics are being used that you've heard of? I mean, th- there's a litany of things that's going on. Um, you've got people that are uh, coming to, uh, that are being loud and boisterous, uh, that are trying to uh, take over the uh, the airways and stuff like that. But the bottom line is, uh, one of the main one of the main re- things that is happening is the fact that the uh, the people think that they don't have their vote don't count, and believe it or not, their vote do not count if they don't vote. 
Uh, and they uh, also uh, believe that no one cares about them within their area of concern. Uh, and that is one reason why we in Clarksville, we are picking up four counties, uh, I mean, three counties other than our own to make sure that the, our neighbors know that they do, that we do care. Uh, we care that they uh, actually go to the polls. We care that they actually register to vote, but we mostly care if they actually cast a ballot for candidates of their choice. Mm. So when you look at this situation now, as compared to when you were first involved, have things changed or have we reverted? Things are slowly going backwards, uh, and, it, and I, 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 that's my own personal humble opinion, um, because we have now we have parents complaining about teachers uh, trying to teach their children about uh, about the state of America. Uh, their parents don't want their kids to know what happened back in the 1800s and the 1900s and stuff. Well, if the you know, I've been told that if you if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Uh, bottom line is that teacher, our teachers are, are being uh, disrespected by leaders of, of the community, not necessarily politicians, but by the parents, uh, to be per particular. Uh, and that's one of the things that we need to do. Uh, we have legislators that are trying to make partisan positions within the now within the county and the cities of the uh, the 95 counties of Tennessee. And that is no, there is no need for uh, local politicians to be uh, partisan because we're supposed to be here to represent everybody, not just a political party. Now, State Representative Vincent Dixie and MTSU political science professor Sekou Franklin are still with us. Thanks again, fellas, for being here. Now, Representative Dixie, you, have you spoken to people who are afraid to vote? Well, now, <clears throat> what the, one of the things that... Uh, Mr. Garland um, alluded to is that we have these poll watchers now, and uh, we've passed bills that where we can have armed poll watchers. Um, and when you talk about our things reverting back, whether well, I know that Mr. Garland's being very nice saying it slowly, but I think it's going at warp speed backwards. We're in 2023, and we're talking about voter intimidation. Mm. You would think this was the 1950s or the early 60s. This is ridiculous that we're talking about this right now. And we have to stop and think, why, why, why is this happening? How can we prevent this? And I'm hoping that this movement that we now are seeing here in Tennessee will ignite people to get up. Because one of the demographics we've had a hard time um, engaging is the 18 to 24-year-olds. And now they're on fire right now. And we have to make sure that they use that fire to get out and vote and know that they can really make a change. So I'm happy what happened happened. Um, am I a little disheartened that it had to happen at this stage in 2023? Yes. And like for, for instance, even me saying that I was the first black caucus chairman in 2020, that's, that's ridiculous. And we do so much in the state legislature to take away people's civil liberties on a regular basis. We're building more jails. We have open carry. It's like we're inviting crime into Tennessee. And we're doing nothing and say, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. We did not pass one gun law while we were here. And that was the perfect time to address it. But if we don't hold our elected officials accountable, as Mr. Garland said, we're going to continue to get the same thing. One way to hold it, elected officials accountable is by voting. But Professor Franklin, as we've seen over the past few decades, election maps have changed. Most recently here in Nashville, how have those moves really affected the black voting base? 
Oh, and significantly adversely affected it. In fact, uh, in the in the voting rights community, gerrymandering or let me say uh, drawing unfair maps um, is just as a, as critical of a voter suppression issue as as are cross burnings, uh, purging, photo ID laws, and the recent maps diluted the the African American vote in Nashville in the congressional district. So African Americans no longer can form a coalition with non-African Americans to elect the candidate of their choice in Congress, which is what we were able to do for the last, the last, at least the last two, two or three decades. And so the African American vote has been significantly undermined um, by the most recent gerrymandering process, but also in the um, congressional redistricting maps that were approved uh, um, Last year, they, they, they went and tried to go after Representative Vincent Dixie. Um, and fortunately, he was able to fight that off. But if you look at those maps, they undermined black representation in Memphis, um, Shelby County. They lost one seat. We saw in Laverne that a new minority-majority community of Latinos and blacks uh, were gerrymandered excessively into a district that goes you know, 10 or 15 miles upwards in a very weird-looking shape. And, and talking to various folks and looking at various maps— We've saw county splits. We've saw we've seen maps that were drawn that have undermined African American representation throughout the state. Maury County, Humboldt, Tennessee, uh, all throughout the state. So the 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 and this is our second wave of second our second um, wave of excessive partisan gerrymandering. That is 2010 to 2011. That was another one wave, and then now another, another wave. And so what's what's gone on is that the supermajority is able to basically embed their power for a generation, um, even though the demographics of, 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 of the state has, um, or at least Middle Tennessee, ha- have changed or are changing. Yeah. Now, now, Jimmy, you mentioned sometimes people feel like their vote doesn't count. Do you think these re- re- redistricting moves Professor Franklin was talking about contribute to that? Yes, it does. But, you know, one of the problems that I feel is more important than them doing it is that we have so many people that are on the voting rolls right now that have not voted in the last five elections, that if these people will go out and vote for candidates of their choice, I believe that things could be changed. Uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of what's happening in uh, in Tennessee today is uh, rep- is it's because a lot of the people of Tennessee have failed to understand the power of their vote. You know, a person that actually casts a ballot for a candidate is doing a great thing. They're doing a marvelous thing. Uh, and if they cast a ballot for a candidate that is out, that that's going to really, re- really represent them, it could amount to major change in the legislature down in Nashville. I, as a matter of fact, up here in Clarksville, there's a politician that's already began uh, advertising for the 2024 election. I call it advertising. He thanked the people for electing him to become the rep- their representative. That is a form of advertisement. I don't know whether it's legal or illegal. It's not matter, but they are beginning to understand the power of the Justins, the two Justins and uh, the, John- the Le- Johnson lady, even though she was not kicked out. She was part of the, the, uh, the, the plot. Uh, I'm, and this, and a lot of people look at that as a bad thing that she didn't get kicked out. I believe that that was the major, major impact on how the nation saw Tennessee when it come to equity, 
come to uh, uh, the power that they put the leadership currently possess. Uh, because because of their possession as leadership, we have tens of thousands of people, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people without Medicaid, without health care. We have a lot of people that are living on the streets because they can't afford to be to live inside of a building. Uh, voter intimidation, and we got, uh, th there's a lot of things that's going on that's causing voter uh, yeah. the voter participation. Professor Franklin, you want to? Yeah, just to add to that, with the gerrymandering and then also with what, what Elder Garland talked about is that one of the things that's missing from this discussion is is that the number of what we call moderate Republicans um, has diminished significantly and the ability to elect white Democrats who are not living in Shelby County or, and not living in in Davidson County. That is those two factors have been significantly, significantly reduced um, in the last in the last decade, including you know, Democrats who represent who represent rural, rural lawmakers. And my last point about that is that and we do know that in these very kind of emerging, diverse counties that that maybe that made a difference in even the exposing crisis. I think there were two Rutherford County lawmakers, Republicans, who decided not to expel at least one of at least one of the lawmakers. Mm -hmm. There was a Shelby County official, a Republican, who decided not to expel Justin Justin Pearson. So we do so 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 the ability to to do the work that that Representative Dixie is doing is also going to depend upon the ability to make inroads in these communities and find more amenable lawmakers um, who may not be black. Some of them may even be may even be Republican, but they're not necessarily anchored or dependent upon the level of political extremism that we've seen. In, in recent years. Representative Dixie, Dixie, how does the Democratic caucus, how do they feel about some districts that, from what Professor Franklin is sharing with us and, and Elder, Elder Garland, that are unwinnable? I mean, that's just the reality of it. <clears throat> we understand that, but it isn't our woe is me. Yeah, I don't want us to paint that picture that's woe is me. We're like 46th in voter turnout. I mean, that's that's pitiful. So we have a voter engagement problem. Then we have a voter getting them to the poll problem. That's the issue. If we could just get to 42, that's hundreds of thousands of votes that could swing an election. And I think that with the way they gerrymandered it, now we have representatives picking who they want to vote for them rather than the voters picking who they want to represent them. So we have to wake up and realize, OK, what's the best way to win right now? Okay, yes, they gerrymander a lot of districts, but there's some opportunity districts around here. But what we can do, if we mobilize, organize, and get people to the polls, what we can do is we can win a statewide election. You can't gerrymander a whole state. Mm. So let's start at the top and then work our way down. So there's strategy, but it has the one thing that I've worked on for the last three years is building coalitions, not only with the party, but with the Senate, you know, Tennessee Senate, and to make sure that we're all working together on the same page. And because in the past, we've all worked in silos instead of working together. And that's one of the things that we're going to do as we move forward. But we have to get a statewide, a Democrat, we have to have a pathway for a Democratic candidate to get elected to a statewide office. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake Alona. We're talking this hour about the dismantling of black political power in Tennessee with Professor Sekou Franklin, Jimmy Garland of the Tennessee Conference of the NAACP, and State Representative Vincent Dixie. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, last year, we had Keita Haynes, Senior Legal Counsel for Free Hearts on the show. She couldn't join us today, but that episode, in that episode, she talked about how mass, mass incarceration has disproportionately 
disproportionately affected African-Americans. Let's listen to a little of what she shared. It has completely diluted the black vote, right? Because mm. what, you know, with the, the correlation between um, voting rights and the criminal legal system, really and truly what we have done is that we have allowed the criminal legal system to decide who gets to participate in our democracy, right? Because if you have a felony conviction on your record here in the state of Tennessee, you will not be able to vote until you have successfully completed your probation, parole, supervision, whatever it is that you had, you've paid fees and fines. Um, and Tennessee is the only state that requires you to be current on your child support. Mm -hmm. And Tennessee right now, we are disenfranchising over 450,000 people because of a felony conviction on their record. So she estimates that nearly 450, over 450,000 people are not allowed to vote. That sounds like enough people to turn the political tide in a few districts. Professor Franklin, how is that impacting our communities right now? Oh, significantly. And I think the numbers now might be since that last uh, discussion is 470,000 people. But you're mm. talking about um, uh, hundreds of thousands of voters, and 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 it's particularly in these rural communities. And I and I'm paying. I paid a lot of attention to rural West communities, Hardeman County, Fayette County, Haywood County, um, where you know a thousand votes here, a thousand votes there could significantly sway elections. In addition to that, I, I would say that um, once a person is activated to vote, they become a habitual voter, and they tell their child to to vote. They bring their kids to the polls, and they also can activate their family members. So if you have people who are from families and communities where there's a low voter turnout rate, then that impacts um, that has a broader impact. So these this this these group of folks who should be able to vote who are form, just as impacted persons. It's not just about them voting, but it's about people that are in their social networks. Once they are activated then their social networks will be activated. Mm -hmm. Now, we saw last week Montana State Representative Zoe Zafer, a trans woman, was barred from the floor by her colleagues. Jimmy, what does that tell you about the future of our democracy where parties who hold this supermajority will banish and expel rather than engage with their political opponents? It, it shows the lack of security on their part, uh, because the bottom line is the only way that I can stay in power is by denigrating the my opposition. That means that I I no longer have control. Uh, America is is quickly blending uh, right now. Uh, if you look across Tennessee, you have a lot of a uh, lot of a uh, lot of the incoming residents of Tennessee are people of color, whether they're Hispanic, Asian, uh, Black, or whatever. Uh, but any time that a person have to remain in power by intimidation or coercion, they are no longer in control except but being in the position that they're in. Again, going back to uh, the voting, uh, a vote matters. Every vote matters. As uh, Representative Dixon said and uh, Dr. Franklin, if we don't vote, we don't matter. And my, my position in uh, as the vice president for Middle Tennessee and we're, as a member of the NAACP. We're going to have to end it there. We all we all definitely need to vote. It's our civic duty. I want to thank my guests, Professor Sanku Franklin, political science professor at MTSU. He's also the co-author of Losing Power, African-Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics. He was joined by Jimmy Garland of the NAACP of Middle Tennessee and Representative 
Vincent Dixie of District 54. Thank you all so much, and thank you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville. It's a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Our episode today was produced by Steve Farouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudho. Props to Laurent and Amir Blade for the theme music. Special thanks to Keita Haynes. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And you know the conversation doesn't end here. You can tweet us at Nashville and find us on Instagram. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.